So I like either asking a question to start this off or to pose kind of a, a statement and see what you think. So think with me. Jesus, we're not thinking of just the kind of Christian church, but kind of culturally. Jesus might be the most famous, I'm going to say moral teacher for a very specific reason. Might be the most famous moral teacher, kind of religious morals in history. For those outside the church, or for most outside the church, he's increasingly known for two proverbial statements, and you probably know them. He's known for saying, do good unto others, and judge not lest ye be judged. Yes, anybody, that's probably the two things they think of when they think of Jesus. Inside the broader church, and I was thinking kind of closer to home, he's, he's probably not seen that much differently. He's, he's probably closer, let me help you with your marriage, with your finances, with your kids. Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you want better morals. So I want to point you, there's a study done by Ligonier Ministries. Some of you might know this. It's called the State of Theology. And it polls, I think, the last six or so years. One of their statements asks for an agree or disagree, and I think it's relevant for today, especially for today. The statement was Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. In 2020, about 30% of evangelicals agreed with this. In 2022, it went up to 43%. And it's trending a lot higher and faster. Now I'm going to juxtapose that against another statement. This statement, sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin, went up in agreements. Went from 91% to 94%. So I want you to think about this. Though we agree with this statement, we agree that sex outside of marriage is wrong, do you see why those outside the church might think of us a little different? They, they might think they're a lot more moral than theological. They don't know where it comes from. We don't know who Jesus is. Why do we agree with this? When Jesus comes to the festival in, in John 5, many kind of expect him to play nice. And I think a lot of people expect him to play nice. Teach a few lessons, maybe help prepare the feast, give some advice, like, hey, this is the best way you can do this. But when he comes, he heals on the Sabbath. And that's a big no-no, according to them, on how they read the Mosaic Law. And he claims, not that I and morality are both working at this time. He says, I and, and God were both working at this time. And he has come, not principally, and this, this might be controversial, but I'm going to explain. He comes not principally to make you moral. He comes principally to make you perfect. Not just moral, but perfect. And last week, we, we saw a glimpse of this perfection. Jesus spoke the word to the royal official's son, doesn't touch him, isn't even near him, and the son is healed. And then something very similar happens this week. We're going to see this in three points. The first is displaying his glory, verses 1 through 16. By healing on the Sabbath, Jesus shows, I am one with the Father. And seconds is grounding his authority. Verses 17 through 30. 
He's confronted by the Jewish authorities. He's basically sold out to the Jewish authorities. And he describes his relationship to the father that commissions him to do this. I, I have to do this work. That's what I've been commissioned to do. And lastly is salvation to Trinitarian glory. Verses 31 to 47. He doesn't just do this for him. He tells this to you. I have come to bring you into this glory. I have come to make you perfect. And so I hope you hear this throughout. Jesus has brought you into the fullness of his Trinitarian rest. He brought you. Not somebody else has brought, brought you, if you believe in Jesus. So we're going to begin with point one, displaying his glory. So look with me at verse one. He's setting the scene. John setting the scene in this gospel after describing, talks about another feast at the end of John 4 with the royal official son. Nobody's quite sure, terribly sure what feast this is. It doesn't say. There's guesses to what feast this is. But John just doesn't tell us. And you are now inserted into another feast. Jesus joins, and this time it's in Jerusalem. The last feast he actually joined was in Cana and Galilee, the wedding feast. And now he's in Jerusalem. So verses 2 to 5, then describe what most think is probably Jewish lore. So I didn't have verse 4 in here. There's conjecture whether or not verse 4 is canonical. But Jewish lore, it's kind of Jewish mystical tradition, which is usually what verse 4 mentions. It's by the Sheep Gate in Bethesda. There was a pool. It's probably not far from the temple because these colonnades, they're all part of the kind of the same system. The ancient Jewish tradition held that at certain points, and again, nobody is sure, angels would come walking on top of this pool, they'd touch it, and whoever's in that pool is then saved. When anyone with any physical, mental, or spiritual abnormality entered the waters while an angel visited, it was said that they were healed. Nobody's really sure how this happens, but some divine power. And you're like, that's kind of similar to what we see today, a lot of spirituality. So this man in verse 5, he reclines by the pool, and he's unable to push himself in. And if he gets in, he probably can't get out, so he drowns. So he needs somebody to help him. So here's the picture. I want you to, want you to picture this. I want you to imagine this. This is a time of feasting. So think of like a big party. Again, we've talked about bigger party than you've ever seen. Seven-day-long party. We're used to five-hour-long parties, which are still long. A seven-day-long party. That's what most feasts are. It's a festival, there's probably laughter, there's playing, and there's rejoicing. Because we're reminding themselves of what Yahweh has done for us. Yahweh has delivered us. Let's praise him. And they're probably recalling stories, like Moses said in Deuteronomy, they're probably recalling the Exodus. Bring them out from slavery into freedom. That's, that's, that's usually what they talk about at these festivals. And then there are those who can't participate by this pool. They can't be part of this. They can't rejoice. They can't be glad. They're just sitting there. This guy's been sitting there for a long time. And what are they hoping for? Not hoping for Yahweh. Not hoping for the Messiah. They're hoping for an angel to show up and heal them. This man's been here a long time. It's either he's 38 years old or he's been there for 38 years. The text is not terribly clear about this. Either way, he's probably been here for a long time. So for 38 years, imagine this. Some of you are beyond 38 years. That's a long time. It's a long time to sit by the pool, look over your shoulder, 
and look at this festival. Look at this feast. It's like, I could be part of that if I wasn't broken. If I could be part of this, I would. So Jesus comes in verse 6, and notice who begins this conversation. There's there's this paralyzed or crippled, nobody's sure. He's, He's called sick in the text. Does he reach out to Jesus and says, Jesus, please heal me. Jesus, I want to be part of that festival. Please, please heal me. Who starts the conversation? Jesus says, would you like to be healed? Just kind of walks up to a random guy and says, would you like to be healed? And you would think this is probably the most obvious answer in all of the Bible. He asks, would you like to be healed? <clears throat> you would think he's like, absolutely, I'd like to be healed. I do not want to be here anymore. I want to be part of this festival. It's like asking somebody who broke their legs or is paralyzed in the lower body, would you like to run again? They'd probably say, like, absolutely, I'd like to run again. That'd be great. Feel the wind through my hair, if you have hair. In verses 7 and 9, they give us the content of the conversation. It's very short, but it sounds kind of like the royal official son, the last we just got. <clears throat> the end of chapter 4 And it kind of sounds like the Samaritan woman at the beginning of chapter 4. Sick man answers Jesus. Notice what he doesn't say. Yes, I would like to be healed. He says, I have no one to put me in the water that I might be healed. Sick man answers, he's got no one. Angel is just kind of the way. The water is the thing that heals him. He's like, I got someone to push me in and then take me right back out. He's, he's basically, he's fully bought into like Jewish mystical theory. That some angel comes and heals him. There's, there's no evidence of this in the Old Testament. He's not really pulling something from the Old Testament. He's just pulling from tradition. But if you recall the conversation between the Samaritan woman, especially in Jesus... What are they talking around and talking about? They're talking about water. They're right next to a well, they're talking about water. The living water. She doesn't notice the source of the living water right in front of her saying, you don't have to come here anymore. You can come to me, and I'll give you water that you will never parch. <clears throat> now this man points to the water near the temple. Again, this place is right next to the temple. Points to the water and says, that, that's the thing that saves me. This thing right here, this thing I can see, this is the thing that saves me. When again, he's got the embodied water talking to him. At the temple, talking to him. Without reference or aid of the troubled waters, as Jesus pushed him into the waters, like, here you go, I'm going to help you out a little bit. He does the same thing he did to the royal official's son. He doesn't say, okay, let's work on this. I'm going to kind of divine incantation. I'm going to, all these words. All he says is, get up, take your bed, and walk. Which the guy didn't ask for. He never said, I want to be healed. He just says, no, just throw me into the water. I'll be good. Immediately he got up, took up his bed, and he walks. It's a problem. It's not a problem for this, that Jesus doesn't need water because he is living, living water. The word of the Lord, which goes forth and accomplishes precisely what he intends. He doesn't have to kind of wrestle against creation. He just tells it what to do and it does it. So he started thinking, this is not a moral teacher, not principally a moral teacher, not telling you how to be a better person, 
somebody making you into a better person. Somebody puts you to be a better person. Not even a better person, but like able to do things. But then this pesky little ending to verse 9 comes and rears its head at you. Now that day was the Sabbath. If you're in the first century in the Jewish context, you have a big uh uh-oh on your face. Because what what he just did of taking up his bed specifically is a direct violation of the Mosaic law. It's Numbers 15.31. Do not take up your bed. What is the thing he does? Takes up his bed. So we're thinking, okay, Jesus broke the law. Or did he break the law? Jews, they're worried about every jot and tittle of the law, and they'll pounce on verse 10. It's kind of like they're, they're watching Jesus, and they see him do this, and like, oh, okay, he, he just took up his bed. He just took up, let's, let's go get him. As if they're in the background hungry to catch Jesus, or someone in the acts. It, like, it, it kind of does seem like they're there, that they're watching this. How would they know? Verses 10 to 13, don't show forth a fanciful addition. So the Jews aren't adding. They're not looking to that 613 tradition. They're worried about the mosaic. They're worried about dutiful observation of God's commandments and the subsequent consequences for violations. Here, the Jews aren't, they're not wrong. They're actually dead on. It's exactly what you do. Because it certainly wasn't lawful to take up anything, not just the bed. You couldn't take up anything on the Sabbath. Again, here you have to think, they're thinking the first, like, Jesus just sinned. Jesus just told someone to sin. That's probably what they're initially thinking. And I think John wants that little bit of shock. Even though it's not true, he wants that little bit of shock. But this man doesn't take responsibility. He says, oh, no, I didn't do anything. That guy over there told me to do it. I wasn't actually the guy who took him on bed. That guy told me to take up my bed. So the Jews are indignant. Who does this man think he is to violate God's law or to tell someone to violate God's law? It's one thing to do it on your own. It's another thing to think it and then tell someone to do it. That's what the Jews are thinking. He just told someone to sin. After the initial confrontation between the healed man and the Jews, Jesus finds in verse 14... He finds the man, and he essentially tells him to repent. He doesn't heal a believer. I think you think he heals a believer, but he doesn't heal a believer. Because after he heals him, then he says, don't sin any longer. In all reality, as much as we're given in the text, Jesus doesn't heal a person who believes in him. And so I think this is kind of so much for the whole like word of faith movement. The more faith you have, kind of better chance you have of being healed. Because Jesus doesn't heal a Christian. It's, it's almost like he goes in the crowd and says, I want that one, and then just heals some random guy. And what's remarkable is the man doesn't follow him. If you look at just about anybody else he heals, the one with the discharge, the royal official son, just about anybody else follows him. You're the son of God. You just heal me. You did something I can't do. Nobody else has ever done. You're different. 
But he just leaves. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't follow him. Doesn't ask his name. Doesn't say, who are you? You've done this. Who are you? You're different. Doesn't ask about his identity or how he was able to do what he did. It's almost like, thanks, see ya. Feel better now. He probably just describes it to some mystical. He probably doesn't think it's that different than what happens in the pool. Oh, I go into the pool, I get healed. Oh, this random guy who's some mystical worker, he heals me. Thanks. And walks away. But who does he tell? Who does he go for? He goes and tells on him. Goes to the Jews and says, that guy healed me. Doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't ask him anything. It's like one of you kids, you see your brother or your sister, I'm sure you probably did this this week, because I did this. You see your sister or your, your brother reaching their hand into the cookie jar when you know what your parents said. Don't eat from the cookie jar. You see your sister or brother, and you can't wait to tell your parents. Look what they did. They just took cookie from the cookie jar. That's almost exactly what this guy is doing. He healed me. I'm going to go tell the juice. As one commentator stated, this kind of sounds like Judas. Healed, sees great things, and then go tells them, hey, this guy is breaking your law. So the Jews gathered together in verse 16, not to praise Jesus, not to commend him, not to tell people about him, but to persecute him. Because he broke the law. At least they think he broke the law. It makes sense though, right? Jesus broke the law. But did he break the law? Why would Jesus seemingly break the Sabbath, especially for someone who didn't ask for it? Doesn't look for healing, doesn't want healing, and just kind of goes away. Brings us to point two, grounding his authority. Now begins, at least in John, probably the most Trinitarian passage in all of the gospel. It starts with verse 17. It's not the first verse 17 is not Jesus worked up to this point, kind of a, a runner on the trail, an Olympic runner, has a baton, that passes to Jesus, and Jesus goes, okay, I'll start running now. It's not what verse 17 means. It means Jesus, it means my Father and I have been working even now. You can say even the Sabbath, my Father and I have been working until now, until this point. For who is the only one who works on the Sabbath? Who doesn't cease working on the Sabbath? It's the Father. Father doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. Father doesn't provident, stop providentially controlling the world. Doesn't providentially, stop providentially steering the world in a certain way. Never stops. Never stops working. This means that Jesus works on the Sabbath. Because his Father does. We think of resting as he just kind of sits in this kingly seat, but he's still got to providentially control the world. Still upholding it by his right hand. And he gives the Jews in verse 18 even more reason to persecute him. You can just hear their incredulous thoughts firing through their brains. He just violated the Sabbath, which is one thing for us, and now he's claiming to be God. 
They're just kind of ticking on all this stuff that they're going to bring against him. So Jesus begins explaining to them why he healed on the Sabbath, which is why we put all of chapter 5 together. Because you, you don't know why he's doing it unless you read the end. And in verses 19 to 24, he begins with that royal, truly, truly, or verily, verily. It says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Begins in verse 19. doesn't mean the son is impotent. doesn't mean the son is not powerful. But it means... His authority doesn't just come from himself, it comes from the Father. He fully agrees with the Father. He doesn't have to request from the Father. He just works as the Father works. Because Jesus explains in the back half of this verse, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. They're not two separate wills, not two separate things doing their, their different things. As long as they kind of accord, they're ungood, they're always in accordance. There's a fancy theological term that describes this. It's called inseparable operations. And I'll describe. All this means is whenever you hear about the Father doing something, or the Son doing something, or the Spirit doing something, all three are doing it. They're not doing it differently. They're all three doing the same thing. And yet they're all distinct persons. They do the same work. And Jesus will continue to explain. This is hard for us to understand because we're not, we're, we're finite creatures who don't understand divine workings. But let me explain. By nature of being the son, if you're a son, what does that mean you have? It means you have a father. And by nature of the father, being the father, that means you have a son whom he loves. But if, Jesus, if the Jews thought healing on the Sabbath was a great work, because that's what he's saying, don't marvel about this. Bigger things are coming, because I'm, I'm, I'm about to be resurrected. It's a bigger deal than just healing. And he continues, Jesus does in verse 21. Again, with the inseparable, where all three do the same thing, yet separate persons, distinct persons. And they're likely invoking... Images of Daniel 12 and Ezekiel 36 to 37. Because a lot of people think the resurrection is just a New Testament thing. That just happens in the New Testament. Just when Jesus resurrects, all people resurrect. You kind of see a picture of this with Lazarus. But resurrection is not a New Testament thing. Not just a New Testament thing. It's also an Old Testament thing. They don't just kind of pull resurrection out of the theological hat. And say, like, look at this new thing we're doing. You've never seen this before. So think with me. In the flood of Noah, they go through the waters where everything else dies and they're lifted back up to life. The birth of Isaac from Sarah's womb, pronounced dead, nothing can come from her womb, and yet life comes from her womb. Joseph seemingly dies at the bottom of the pits and he's brought up to the right hand of the Pharaoh. You have Moses leading Israel through deadly waters which kills all of Pharaoh's host, yet they're brought to life. You have Israel's exile from the land to the restoration. And you have Daniel's multiple brushes, both he and his friends, with death to be miraculously brought to life. So when he's talking about resurrection, this is not just a New Testament thing. This is an Old Testament, New Testament thing. It wouldn't have been new for them. And then in verses 22 to 30, or 23, 
Jesus is not contradicting everything you know about the judgment of God. We think, well, God judges. That's what he does. But then Jesus says, God does not judge. And you're like, hold on. This, like, this goes against everything I think. But again, this comes to that what I called inseparable operations. This is an old theological concept. The Father doesn't judge by himself. Not just the Father. For if all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, do the same work, and we'll get to how they do this, then as the Son judges, this judgment is from the Father, but it's not from him alone. He doesn't just work alone. They work in a Trinitarian way. Jesus does not judge of his own accord because <coughs> he was given its from the Father. Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God, to dishonor any one of those is to dishonor God. Dishonor the Son is to dishonor God. Dishonor the Spirit is to dishonor God. And listen how Jesus connects his mission with the Father in verse 24. To believe Jesus is to believe the Father. Because to believe the Father is to believe the Son. It works both ways. You can't cut the Son from the Father. Say, I just like the Father. Son's okay. Or I just like the Son. Father's kind of mean. Because that severs the Father-Son relationship, which makes them who they are. Because to believe the Father is to believe the Son. And if you don't believe that, then the Father is no longer the Father. If you cut his son, he's not the father. If you cut the father, he's not the son. To believe in the son, then, is to pass from judgment into life. And thinking of the festival, they're thinking of Exodus, they're thinking from bondage in Egypt, out of bondage of Egypt, into the promised land. And he's probably thinking along these lines as well, with judgments into life. As the Spirit of God, Exodus 12, Exodus 13 passes over the door frames, passes over the houses, passes over the blood-stained door frames, doesn't just say you're good because you have blood. It's like, no, you actually, you're accounted for because you have blood. That those who identified with Yahweh <coughs> might live. They have blood in their doorposts because something had to die for him to pass over. So too do all those who confess the blood of Jesus pass not around judgments, as if they don't have it, but pass through judgments. So the judgment didn't fall on me. The judgment fell on Jesus. Now I have life. And then ending out this section in verses 25 to 30, Jesus connects his oneness with the Father. And if you know the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, this is like Jewish theology 101. The Lord our God is one. And home only you should serve. He connects this with his identity, his work, and his mission, and especially so the Son of Man, which is Daniel 7. He connects, Jesus does his mission and word, because it's effective, it does the thing he tells it to do. He doesn't have to kind of convince somebody to believe or convince somebody to be healed. When he says it, the thing is done. He connects this with Ezekiel, <coughs> whom the Lord told, speak to these bones, tell them to live. That's Ezekiel 37. Not just bodies, 
to longer earthly life, which is, which is basically what Ezekiel 37 is pointing to. It's exile into away from exile. So I'm not just telling you about earthly life, just longer earthly life. I'm telling you about heavenly life, about new creation life. And it's called back to the beginning of John 1 because Jesus grants life. As I don't just give you portions of life, kind of take life from my belt and hand it to you. Part of me comes to you. He doesn't just grant life. He, he is life. And so he gives life. Not because he reaches some vat of life and then hands to you a portion of life. But because he is life, he gives you life. And verses 27 to 29 then bring back the illusion attributed to Jesus, Daniel 7. Son of man, which comes down with the clouds of heaven. He's given all power and authority. And Jesus says, I am that guy. I'm that one Daniel 7 was talking about. For God has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgments because he's the son of man. That's exactly what Daniel 7 was saying. He was given authority is granted to execute judgments. And this is like Adam in the garden. He's told, have dominion, multiply, subdue the earth. And Jesus says, I'm that guy. I'm that Adam guy. I'm that Daniel guy. I'm the one they're all looking towards. I'm going to do this. He doesn't come again as some moralistic teacher. like, let me, let me help you a little bit. You're like, inject a little moral into your lives. No, I've, I've come to make you perfect. I've come to change you, not just kind of add a little bit to your life. His words then create life and call forth from the tombs to resurrection life. In verses 28 to 29 of John 5, they're almost word for word from Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 1 to 2. It, it says the same thing. The good to resurrection life, the evil, to eternal hell. It's like, I'm that guy. I do that too. In fact, I'm the one who did it in Daniel 12. I'm the one who still does it today. He finishes grounding his authority by relating verse 19 and verse 30. So the Father and the Son, they're fully in accord. Everything they do agrees with each other. And this can be so because the Son is of the same divine essence as the Father. Not adopted, not created, but from the Father. So he pronounces the same judgment. If he's of the same divine essence, he has to do everything God does. He has to be perfectly in line with God because he comes from God. Now that Jesus has grounded his authority in the Father, he explains now why he heals on the Sabbath. Like, I'm God. God worked on the Sabbath. God works on the Sabbath. I'm God. And so I work on the Sabbath. This brings us to the last point, point three, salvation to Trinitarian glory. Verses 31 to 35, Jesus explains both the source and the authority of the testimonies concerning himself. Remember, too, because Jesus doesn't just testify about himself. He doesn't say, like, I'm doing all this great stuff, believe in me. Because he doesn't need to. He just does it. He just proclaims. He just heals. And we'll get there, but he says also, I don't have to because the scriptures testify to it. 
I don't have to add to the scriptures. I don't have to take away from the scriptures because the scriptures testify to me. He also says, so does John. John, whom the scriptures also bear witness to, this is the end of Malachi, also provide a witness, again, not from John, not just kind of regurgitated from himself. He says, no, this is the guy whom Isaiah talked about. This is the guy that Malachi talked about. This is the guy that the law talked about. It doesn't come from John. He points from something and says, this is Jesus. Jesus doesn't need testimony from man. He doesn't need to be proved. Doesn't have to kind of cooperate with man and says, What do you think about me? Oh, that's good. That's cool. Let's let's keep this conversation, this dialogue going. But as the word is derived from the testimony of scripture, then that testimony is true. Going back to scripture, and that's where we get the testimony from. As verse 34 states, the testimony concerning Jesus is not true unless it points to salvation. It points to anything else that is not Jesus. If it points to salvation in Jesus' name, that is true. That's what Jesus proclaims. And this is what he wants you to hear. Verses 36 to 38 then compare the testimony of the Jews to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus' testimony is greater than John because the testimony Jesus proclaims is himself. John points, and then Jesus just does. John testifies by pointing. Jesus testifies by being. I am God. The Jews nor we have ever seen God, and John 1 says this. We've never seen him, nor really heard him, but this is especially true if you don't know God. You've never seen him. He doesn't reveal himself to you. Unless he does, to life. If you do not hear Jesus, you are not in the Father. It's not, well, I hear the Father, but Jesus I can kind of do away with. Speaking directly of the Jews and all who hear this, who think you can set up your standard, because this is what he's talking about here. So you just kind of set your standard on top of Scripture. Like, yeah, Scripture standard is good. Maybe let's add on top of that. That's more man-made stuff is, is good, is better. Those verses 39 to 44 come and, and punch that in the gut. It says, don't you dare add to Scripture. Don't you think your standard's higher than Scripture? Your standard's lower than Scripture. The words of Scripture, they're not some magical thing that alone save. Because they testify to the one who saves. The infallible word of Christ and about Christ the Jews who were experts in Scripture. It's not, they're, not, they're not ignorant of this. They probably, most of these that he's talking to, like we've talked about before, have the entire Old Testament memorized. In Hebrew. They know it better than you. They know it better than me. But he says as if they've never read them. Have no concept. The Scriptures implore the Jews, <coughs> and they implore you, and this is the, the, if you could sum up the entire message of the Bible, what Jesus is saying, he says this, come to Jesus. Come to me. Every single person, institution, law, practice, ceremony, festival, 
everything points to him. He's not just saying parts of it or this story or that story that seems clear. He says, no, if you get this wrong, you don't see what Scripture's talking about. Jesus has come in his Father's name. So if you hear Jesus' words, you are hearing the Father. Uh, Jesus speaks and God speaks. Jesus speaks and God speaks at the same time. And then look at this stinging critique at verse 44. And I think this is, this is very, this is pointed towards us as well. Don't think of anybody else as pointed towards us. Pointed towards you. Because he's not saying their desire for glory is too big. You're looking for too much. He's saying it's too small. You expect a little tiny glory. Because they receive glory from one another basically for how well are you holding the law? How well am I holding the law? Let's compare notes. I'm doing a little bit better than you, so I can say I'm a little bit better than you. You're doing a little bit better than me, so I've got to work a little harder on the law. It allows them, and I, I think this is, again, a stinging critique on us. A stinging critique on me, a stinging critique on, on you. It allows us to look down on others. The standard that we set. Not the law, the standard that we set. We can look at others and say, you know, I uphold the law really well. But you don't. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you how. I'm right, you're wrong. Let me tell you why. Because we forget the standard of glory, the standard of perfection is not how well you uphold it. Not how well you do it. The standard is perfection. Not just trying really hard. Not just being a good person. Not just being moral. There's a lot of moral good people in hell. There's only perfect people in heaven. That levels the playing field. Nobody's good. Like Paul says, not even one person's good. He's saying this. You compare glory, you stop looking at my glory. You stop looking at my perfection. And then Jesus brings this home in, in, in about as brilliant a way as he possibly can in verses 45 to 47. Because he uses their law against them. You looked at Moses and kind of puffed yourself up and says, I'm pretty good at what I do. And then he brings Moses against them. Do you revel, he asks both them, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, do you revel in your law-keeping? I did this really well, and I did this a lot. Maybe in the standards that you set, the, the holiness that you exude. Like, I'm a lot holier than you. I'm not going to tell you that directly, but I'm going to tell you that indirectly. You look at the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and think, yeah, I'm pretty good at that. I, may, I, I know it better than you, so I'm, I'm better at it than you. I'm better than those sinners, those guys who don't uphold it as well as I do. He says you can't hope in the law because the, hope, the, the law condemns you. It's not a thing you hope in. The law is not a thing you believe in. The law is a thing you do. This is, this is Paul's entire point in the book of Galatians. Don't believe in the law because the law is going to crush you. The law will kill you. They looked at the Sabbath as the law of man, not as the day the Lord 
works on to bring you rest. He's still controlling. And it has to bring you rest. Because when Moses wrote in verse 46, what does Jesus not say? He wrote about the temple, he wrote about the Ten Commandments, he wrote about the law, the institutions, the sacrifices. He said, if I can sum it all up, Moses wrote about me. It's a pretty big statement. And if you believe in Jesus, the, the Sabbath day he healed a lame man, that's what he brings you into. He brings into, you into wholeness, into perfection, into his rest, because he worked, and he still works. Not just the Sabbath day, not even the Sabbath week, not even like the Jubilee, a Sabbath year. You get eternal Sabbath. You get eternal rest. You don't need to work. You don't have to work, because the work's been done. When you will enter into the rest of the Trinitarian Godhead, you get what Jesus earned. You get what Jesus worked for. That's what you get. That's the rest you enter into. Because Jesus worked. Jesus worked so you can rest. You have Trinitarian rest, which is more rest, better rest than you can ever think of. In John 5, you get a picture of the eternal vista you will be brought into, you, you will get Trinitarian rest. You yourself. Because the Son worked as the Father worked. Because if the Son and the Father didn't work, you don't get it. The Son worked and the Father didn't work, you don't get it. The Son worked differently than the Father worked, you don't get it. But they did. So the Spirit given to you is your guarantee that you will enter into result of their work, you will get rest. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is both a concept and reality <coughs> we have such a hard time dealing with that we can rest. That you worked on the Sabbath. That you are working on the Sabbath. And that can bristle against us, that can go against us. Lord, you show us this pattern in John 5, <coughs> that you worked on the Sabbath because you are God. And you work. And you work for our rest. And we enter into that by believing in your Son, that he has come to fulfill the law that we have broken and give us both forgiveness of our sins and eternal perfection. So we will be part, not just an observer of, but a part of your Trinitarian rest. We thank you and we praise you. All this in your son's name.